Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, this is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. And I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, author of the novel Love Marriage. Today we're taping live at the Miami Book Fair. This event will be aired later as an episode of our show, which you can find by searching for fiction slash non slash fiction on your favorite podcast app. Will also appear on our show's YouTube channel and on LitHub's virtual book channel. And today we're excited to be talking to Joshua Ferris. Joshua Ferris is the author of three previous novels, Then We Came to the End, The Unnamed, and To Rise Again at a Decent Hour, as well as a collection of stories, The Dinner Party. He's been a finalist for the National Book Award, winner of the Barnes & Noble Discover Award, and the Penn Hemingway Award, and was named one of the New Yorker's 20 Under 40 writers in 2010. To Rise Again at a Decent Hour won the Dylan Thomas Prize and was shortlisted for the Booker Prize. His short stories have appeared in The New Yorker, Granta, and Best American Short Stories. He lives in New York, and he's here to talk to us about his newest novel, A Calling for Charlie Barnes, out now. Josh, welcome to the show. Hi, how are you? Thanks for being here. Um, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. This novel begins with Charlie Barnes calling up people from his past and telling them that he has pancreatic cancer. Um, we're given to understand that he's having a sort of he's he's having this you know an existential crisis as one might when that happens if you got a diagnosis yeah. like that. Um, he's a retail stockbroker, as was my father-in-law who died recently and who I really cared for. Maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like there are very few novels about stockbrokers. And why did you choose that for Charlie's profession? I don't know any myself. Do you? Off the, I, the top I could of not head? think of one. Actually, I mean, I could think of stockbroker characters, but not a not a novel that was built around one before. Yeah, I mean, you get it more like in movies, like with uh, Wall Street, Wall Street, and that sort of thing. I mean, they have they have a like a sexiness to them, I guess, visually, you know. But, but yeah, if, I can't think of any novels. It's an interesting job, and it's of course a job that doesn't really exist anymore because you know br retail brokers used to get paid a commission on each stock trade, and now. Yeah. With the rise of uh, E-Trade and then and more recently Robinhood, stock commissions are gone. And so I, at the end of his career, my father-in-law was basically a financial advisor and sort of investing yeah. money on a percentage. Yeah, that's what they have to do now, I think. most. And a lot of people don't want to have the responsibility of dealing with their portfolios. They get very nervous. It's the same sort of thing that, you know, it might occur to me to do it on my own because my father did it and educated me in that regard. But if you're doing it on your own, it can be very scary. 
I lost my entire. I don't actually know of any novels that that take that, and I I'm not really sure why. I mean, it it is a pretty big deal, you know. We're we're talking about nest eggs here. We're talking about people's retirements. I would think that it would uh, maybe inspire more people to write about it. It also is very you know kind of bound up in the financial world, which is where we live. A lot of us live there, along with technology into the technological world. So it would suggest more of an appeal, but. I think you know professions are very difficult to get on down on the page. People sort of um, set them pro forma, and then they're done with it. They don't explore it. And once you have a profession for your character, you for, can forget about it. <laughs> I tend not to do that, but yeah. I mean, I I've argue, I tell Sue this all the time that and she doesn't like this, but the uh, that that writing is the most capitalist profession you could possibly be involved in, and writers d- pretend that that's not the case, you know, and, and don't like to talk about their own money in particular, but. You know, writers, particularly people who are working at universities, all have retirement accounts and yeah. all are invested in the market in some way or the other, I think. Tell me what you mean by the most uh, capitalist profession. Well, I mean, either, you know, if you sell a book and it does well, then uh-huh. you get to sell your next book for more. And if it yeah. doesn't, you don't. It's sort of like it's a little bit like playing golf also, which is another very capitalist sport where if you succeed, you get paid. If you don't, you don't. It is true, isn't it? It's like a little like taking your book to Vegas. We're going to turn up heads or tails? (laughs) Back cover or front cover? Um, It's true. Yeah, I think, you know, no offense to Witt's father-in-law or Charlie Barnes, but I wonder if, you know, one reason maybe there aren't many books about stockbrokers is that many people think they're, I mean, not only mysterious or unknowable, like the profession has this aura of impenetrability to people who are outside of it, the whole financial world, I think even for those of us who are invested in the market in some way, right? Like there is this almost, like I pay my accountant to make my taxes basically go away. Go away, yeah. But so many people also then imagine that, I don't know, the extent to the extent they can imagine this world, they think of stockbrokers as unsympathetic. And the book takes place or, you know, starts in the depth of the financial crisis of 2008, which is an event co- kind of caused by people like Charlie Barnes and his friend, Jimmy Kane, who works at Bear Stearns, which is like one of the firms that went under during the crisis. That Charlie, you know, as we meet Charlie, he's, He's also outraged by Jimmy's greed and impropriety. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about why. Well, just in case my accountant is, is listening in, I will say that the only reason I have him around is so that he calls me and that we get closer every year. Um, you know, I would say that, that it's not Charlie, that Charlie Barnes that's responsible for the, the, the crisis. Um, in fact, I would make a very strong argument for the distinction between him and, and Jimmy Kane and the likes of Jimmy Kane and that Charlie is ethical. And uh, the results of his um, labors have proven this out because he's now working from the basement of his home, whereas Jimmy Kane was working in one of the finest addresses in, in Manhattan uh, when Bear Stearns went down. So I would really make a distinction between the two men and between a lot of the people that were responsible for the Great Recession in 2008 and Charlie, because Charlie is very determined to do the ethical thing. And, to, and, and even if he isn't a terrible success, a great success, at uh, on Wall Street, I would actually say that that's even more proof of his ethical bent. It seems to me, it seemed to me in 2008 anyway, that really the distinction between success and failure in the financial market was a matter of ethics, the appetite for ethics. And what sent Charlie to his basement was an ethical, a scruple really, and a belief that uh, when a client paid you to invest his or her money, you did your best to bring a profit to that money in an honest way. Um, And I think that his big differences with um, the market, with uh, his position in it, his place in it, 
and with America circa 2008 when he's diagnosed with pancreatic cancer is his sudden understanding of that, that the game is, that the game is, is fixed, that the books are cooked, and that it didn't matter how he behaved. His ethical determination uh, was the thing that really um, bound him to less than success to some extent. I mean, he is, he is responsible. He has great responsibility for the other failures in his life. Uh, I think, but in this one regard, I would say that he actually comes out uh, looking pretty good comparatively. Speaking of my my father-in-law again, he you know he was from he lived in, grew up in San Francisco. His dad was a stockbroker. He believed in the American dream, I thought, and he was also a really ethical he you know ethical person at advising people on money. And when the financial crisis happened, he was incredibly disappointed that companies that he had believed in or people who he had sold, you know, he told people, hey, this is a company you can invest in, they're safe. And it turned out that he had. He was implicated in it by having advised people to buy stuff that he didn't know was bad because people have been lying about what they were doing, right? Yeah, it could um, be a dirty business. I mean, there's almost at that moment in time, there would be no way for you to get out of a portfolio cleanly, I think. And that's what's so upsetting and, and really so damaging about the world that we live in is that it's very, very difficult. I mean, maybe you can do something like you can invest in the, what is it, the ESG, right? The, um, the more socially minded companies yeah. that are attempting to, allocate resources in a responsible manner. But even then, I'm not really sure that that's anything more than just a publicity push, you know, kind of like scrubbing of the books in whatever direction uh, certain people want. And then everyone feels kind of purified and can proceed uh, with business as usual. I think that the... Um... This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Welcome to the Snapple Market Auditory Experience. Close your eyes. Imagine you're walking into your neighborhood store. You make your way to the back and reach for your favorite Snapple flavor. You can't wait. You take a sip. Whoa, that's a lot of flavor. Mmm. What flavor are you holding? Now open your eyes and check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavorful Snapple near you. That the that lost you're talking about with your it was your father-in-law it was yes. your father-in-law yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah it was more than just the collapse and the momentary loss of a lot of money it was the death of this american dream the idea that we were all working towards something on a level playing ground and mm -hmm. that the companies that we were working for american companies uh, co companies that were taking taking money from Americans and selling products to Americans, we're fleecing them at the same moment in time. And that was uh, the loss of something more than just money. It was, I think, at least for Charlie Barnes, the loss of an ideal that had dictated the, um, the movements of his life, the effort, the energy of his life. And so it wasn't just that at that moment in time, he's diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, but that he's, he's diagnosing the country to which he has striven with all of his you know, native wit, whatever those might be, uh, in the direction of, you know, some kind of honest killing. One can come up with a paradoxical. <laughs> he wanted to do, he wanted to make a killing, but he wanted to do it honestly. And in fact, he split half of his personality in, in, toward, in the direction of social causes. So he was, he really was a man of two minds in that regard. And I think that the, the, when the Great Recession hits and he's reading about all the details of the, of the wholesale fleecing, of the American public, he's more than just sad. He's disheartened. He's he's disillusioned, and he doesn't know really how to go on at a moment in time that he might not have a lot of time left. And of course, I mean, 
to read this book right now. I was like, oh my gosh, um, all of this feels so appropriate. Like this is another, it feels like another moment of diagnosis, um, another moment when people are maybe more willing to take action about the feeling that they have, that they've that they've been fleeced. I'm thinking, I guess, specifically of the Great Resignation, which I guess is um, what the what we're calling it. Uh, you know, 4.3 million Americans, about three percent of the national workforce, leaving their jobs in August. Just sort of, and everyone sitting around being like, maybe I could leave my job. Uh, my boss wants me to go back in person. I don't feel like doing it. This is my boss wants me to clock a certain number of hours, even if I, I finish way in advance. What is the meaning of work? And, you know, bosses are throwing up their hands at the difficulty of getting people to go back to work in person. And, and a lot of workers are like Charlie. Like there's this early, uh, there are some lines early in the book where it sort of talks about him and work-life balance. And I felt this sort of, I couldn't help but imagine um, sort of Charlie sitting around with a bunch of Gen Z folks kind of like bemoaning the state of the world. And I wondered if you thought there was a connection between the way workers are acting now and the the sort of improprieties of the era in which the book begins, what so infuriates Charlie? That I don't know. I, I would say that there's a character in this book by the name of Jerry who has opted out of the system right. and rejected it based on its rapacities, I guess, for lack of a better word, its systematic um, indignities, and then can't get back into it. His resources run dry and he's looking at homelessness really wants to get back into it and they won't let him in. And I think that's, that's something that's a little bit more in common. You know, I, I have something more, I'm more sympathetic to that than the, the there's an, there's an agency the re, the, to the resignation that you're talking about, a, a personal willingness to opt out that seems to me probably less influential than the ways in which a company like Uber, for instance, or Amazon determines that you don't have a contract or that you're a freelancer and therefore, you know, such things as pensions and benefits are eliminated. I think that's a far more powerful and negative force in the working in the world right now than those folks who are opting out because they have the, the freedom to do so, or maybe, you know, even the right to do so because companies aren't demanding that they come back and work in person. So I think it's, it's, for me, it, it's, I'm much more interested in the way in which the power structures that be are determining the ways that we work, the ways that we benefit from the work that we do, the ways that we participate in or fail to participate in the profits that are being generated. And th that seems to me a much more um, a fertile ground for novels to work in. I guess I should say, I mean, I feel a lot of sympathy for Gen Z on this account, and I'm very happily, you know, stream yarding with you from from my home. Yeah, um, for sure. I mean, it's it's a it's a great it, it, for a lot of people. It's a it's a it's a power flip, and it's a wonderful moment to seize some power that is ordinarily just foreclosed to the average worker. I think we were mentioned talking about novels about stockbrokers, but I think in general, like writing about economics, writing about money is something that is important and not done enough in American letters. In, in The Sun Also Rises, um, there's a character who's talking to Jake Barnes, your narrator's namesake, I would guess. And uh, he says a very famous line that he went bankrupt gradually and then suddenly. And Hemingway was often thought of as a writer about hunting or fishing or physical exploits, but he was actually quite good at writing about money. What other writers do you like to read on the subject of money or work? Yeah, novelists don't... I mean, novelists do it because... 
everybody does it. I mean, everybody thinks about money. Everybody, if you're a writer, you write about money to some extent. But really, I, I read the Wall Street Journal, you know, like, <laughs> where 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 what's going on is documented well is in the journal. And the journal is a fascinating magazine because of its difference between the journalism and the and the um, and the op-ed page and those it creates a split personality really like a it's a it's a Jekyll and Hyde magazine it's a Jekyll and Hyde publication and to read it is to really read the um the radical bifurcation of America the American public really I mean they want it both ways and so it's a fascinating psychological read in addition to just giving you the facts about business and you know, when, when you get you throw away the national news and the world news and the op-ed page and you just look at that business and finance section, you are brought to the inner offices and the cutting edge technologies and the, you know, all these supply chain disruptions that we're talking about. You're brought right there to the forefront of it. And they do it in with narrative verve and with great informative uh, articles. And so I, I think that that's probably where I get you know, my interest in it. I mean, it, it can take on certain articles can take on great tension and uh, narrative um, suspense. Um, and I probably also read like uh, people that are writing for for newspapers like that, like a guy named William Cohen and another guy named. Um, I like uh, I teach an article by Matt Taibbi that he came yeah. out around the time that was uh, about Goldman Sachs called the Great American Bubble Machine was the name of the article. And that was where the line. Goldman Sachs is a vampire squid wrapped around the faces of humanity, <laughs> blindly shoving its blood funnel into anything that smells like money. That's the opening part of the article. <laughs> you see, that's good. good. Yeah. yeah. Did you grow up reading the journal? I, you know, I did. I grew up from a very early age, the way that my father and I, we lived, we were separated by a great distance. Right. And so he started at a company called Dean Witter. And it was at the time, it was owned by Sears. And so he would actually sit in the mall and try to attract clients that were just like walkthroughs until he went and got his office, his own office. But they had this 800 number that was free. And as a kid, you know, I'd have to pay. So I would call him on this 800 number and instantly reach him. And we could communicate this way every day for free, which was extraordinary to a, you know, a 10 or an 11 year old in 1985. And he being a stockbroker, I just took interest in this thing. And so I started reading, actually, was it called Investment Business Daily? I think that's what it was. Oh, I used to have a subscription to that. That <laughs> yeah. was a crazy newspaper. Yeah, it was that. And I would read Barron's, but I, you know, I really didn't really understand Barron's. Barron's was, uh, <laughs> my head, but, but I, I, I attempted to do it. And in a way, I think punching over your, your weight in that direction, in the direction of comprehension and reading, does a great deal for, prepares you a, a great deal for like college and reading, you know, Wallace Stevens and John Ashbery and um, Emily Dickinson, very difficult texts in which you're like, I don't know what the hell's going on here, but I have an appetite to learn. So I will read it and read it and read it and read it over again. When I was um, in college, I, worked on newspapers and one summer um, ended up at the journals DC Bureau where I was assigned to cover economics and I knew nothing about it. <laughs> and so, yeah, I was writing- Well, either just fake it. <laughs> that's what all journalists do. Come on, yeah. that's the job. Come in every morning sweating, leave every day sweating, like go home and study. Um, like what, is, what are our orange juice futures? And it was, um, it was, you know, as you say, I you know I grew up reading the Washington Post and also sort of feeling very, as a kid in over my head reading about politics and it was a great education for literature 
and does yeah and does prepare you to sort of contend with like the feeling of being lost which at least for me is inherent to the feeling of reading also like it's but it's yeah. a pleasurable lost the the other two guys i want to mention are james stewart who writes the times but he's yeah. really you know a great uh right den of thieves and and he's written a wonderful book about the walt disney company and uh and a guy named john lancaster who writes for the uh the new yorker and is a novelist in his own right he's really good on money he has a book i think called capital i think yeah. i mean i started following the stock market because i like my grandfather told me, Hey, you should, you know, you should be invested. And then I got my first advance on my first novel. I put it in the stock market and promptly just got destroyed in the dot-com crash. And I was like, okay, well, the broker that I had gave me terrible advice. I'm like, this is just a guy. He doesn't know shit. This guy, I'm going to have to figure this out on my own. You know, that was what, that's how I started reading about this stuff. And that's how you educated yourself. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of a brutal education. It sucked. I was like, I should have bought a Ferrari. Why, why, why did I do the responsible thing and invested in these crappy companies that ended up worth nothing? Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, oh. they came back later. <laughs> there was a moment when I was, I'm sorry, there was a moment when I finally was completely whole, like two years later, and I was like, okay. And I had a little drink, and then I moved on with my life. Yeah, I, I bought my house. I bought my first and only house in 2007, and I think it became whole, like, last week. Yeah. <laughs> I think I'm probably still recovering. I don't know. And then sometimes, you know, during the pandemic, I knew so many people who just, um, what my my fiance was checking, he was checking retirement accounts and I was afraid to look. I just was flat out. Like, I was like, I'm not looking because I can't change anything. And, you know, hopefully this will all even out. But yeah, I don't know. Like um, the feeling of wanting to look away from some of what's going on now. Anyway, but I wanted to go back to Hemingway um for a second you know Whitney was talking about the sun also rises and you know you're a past Penn Hemingway award winner and I was reading the interview that you gave to the Hemingway Society and you were talking about reading the sun also rises again and again kind of over the course of your life and and over the course of your career as a novelist and I was wondering if you could talk about going back to that book again and again and how it has changed for you why is it a book you keep going back to uh it's a good question I mean the book can, does contain multitudes. So I think the first time I read it, I was just swept up in the romance. I was probably 15 and I read it for class. And at that time I was really into, into Russia, the Russians. I just thought that the only, the only people who knew, I mean, I was 15, what do I know? I mean, I'm trying to read Barron's, I don't understand it. I'm probably reading the Russians and understanding just as little. But then I read Hemingway and everything is so radically parred back and it seems to me too simple, but nevertheless, like on page 50, I'm finding myself completely swept away. And also I, I lived in Key West for, uh, I grew up in Key West for five or six years. And I remember my mother, I, we went to the, um, uh, the Winn-Dixie and there was a spindle rack full of Hemingway paperbacks. And I said, who's that guy? Would I like him? Is he fun? And she goes, he's terribly boring. He's so fun. <laughs> you would never, you know, don't read him. You wouldn't like him. So I just thought of him as an old boring guy and, and he was dead and what did I care? But he, but w when I was assigned it, I'm reading it and suddenly I'm finding that all, there's no boredom involved and I am understanding it really pretty clearly because it's, it really is um, straightforward. And I'm swept up by the bullfighting and the S Spain traveling. And I mean, everything that you fall in love with Hemingway when you read him is there for me. And I, it's so exotic, especially, you know, for a, even for a boy that's growing up in very exotic Key West, it has these things that you just don't even, even, didn't even know existed. So that's the initial reading, just 
pure romance and the facility with the language and all that. And then I think later, you know, five years later, maybe I'm reading it again. And at that point, I'm starting to think about how, what it means to put sentences together and create a character and all that. And that's when the more subterranean stuff of the book starts to emerge. You know, uh, Jake's wound, his the tragedy that is his life, how that wound happens, the, the way in which Hemingway suppresses that information in such artful and marvelous ways. And so that starts to blossom into an understanding of the art behind the romance. And so now you've got kind of like two things going for that book. In addition to you're starting, I'm starting to understand the, this, the, the radical break that he made from a writer like Henry James in the generation before to create this new American idiom, uh, you know, a different approach to novel writing. And then probably 10 years later, I made quite a few friends, uh, quite a few Jewish friends, and I read it in great critique because it's a horribly anti-Semitic book. And there's no really way around it. There comes a point in time when, you know, the word kike is mentioned and you're like, okay, well, I'm going to be on guard here because I know who's saying that word. It, to what extent does it infect the entire novel? And sure enough, it does. And it becomes really hard to like it again. But, you know, the biggest advocate for uh, The Sun Also Rises was probably Philip Roth, who, in spite of its anti-Semitism, was a great fan of the book. So you get drawn back into these things that, you know, made it remarkable to begin with. So it's a vexing book. I find it one that I can't read unequivocally, but that I continue to go back to for its artistry and its brilliance. And so you, you talked obviously a little bit about your your father and you described a calling for Charlie Barnes um, before it came out actually as, as being about your father. I don't know, there are aspects of your book that also have like kind of a, isn't it pretty to think so quality to it. And there's a passage in here in which the narrator talks about his stepmother as his primary entry point to understanding fiction. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about families as a space for fiction to develop and ideas about fiction. And I guess here, I mean the lies we tell to and for each other. And if you would read a little bit for us. Yeah, sure. Do you want me to read before I answer the question or should I? Maybe, maybe read. Read, okay. Okay, this is from A Calling for Charlie Barnes, kind of late in the book. Uh, it's actually a part of something. It's really the prologue. And the prologue is called The Facts. Facts are full of dreary compromises and dead ends. Stare at them long enough and you'll go insane. Charlie's solution to this was to tinker with headlamp and toolbox in the workshop of the American dream and to emerge sometime later with a diamond cut hope that might make him a killing and redeem his lost time. This wasn't easy to dismiss as child's play or a variety of magical thinking. It was the most a man could be. He hated fiction when it was confined to a book, but out here in real life, his fictions got him out of bed most mornings and to take them away was to dim life remove its color, silence its invigorating and melancholy score. He couldn't do without them, much as his foster son couldn't have done without this one. Progress is a myth I don't know how to live without. It's been thoroughly repudiated in one realm after another. Ideological, ecological, political, generational, material, moral. Is there anyone who believes in progress anymore? Nevertheless, I keep inventing ways of carrying on. I'm good at tricking the mind. I believe it's not just what I've been trained to do by reading and writing novels, 
but also what humans intuitively do best. I fantasize about splitting open the round, ripe, real life fictions that members of my family carry with them wherever they go and saying to them, see, look, I'm not the only one who makes shit up. I just happen to get paid for it. I've professionalized the family curse. They would deny I was family and take no more interest in my equivocations than they do in my books. Lots of writers today spend time in writer's workshop, giving and receiving feedback as they pursue their craft in a master's degree. And I was no exception. I've had a variety of teachers over the years. I've been taught by new drunks and old cranks, sat at the table with verifiable greats, later attended galas with Nobel laureates. I've learned from the best and know all the mid-listers and second rates too. But none of them, absolutely no one, has taught me more about the centrality of fiction in our everyday lives than my former foster stepmother, Barbara Ledoux, the nurse at First Baptist. Uh, that passage and a lot of your portrait of, wait, Sugi, do you want to have him answer your question now? Yes. I, I, I forgot. I was going <laughs> to yeah, answer I just, yeah, I right. we'll, we'll open space here for you to respond to Sugi, if you can remember what she said. Can <laughs> you remind me one more time? Yeah, sure. Um, I was interested in sort of just thinking about families as a space for fiction to develop the, the idea of it is a place where you're telling this, people are telling different stories about the family to each other, lying to each other and for each other. And I also was interested in the notion of, I mean, the way that you kind of juxtapose ideas about workshop and about relationships there. You know, there's a great movie called The Merowitz Stories by Noah Baumbach. And there's a, when the Ben Stiller character is, is successful and strong and um, he has sort of, evolved beyond fam familial conflicts. He's telling someone this and he gets sort of seduced back home and the very minute that he gets there, he starts fighting with his father. And so these projections that we have of ourselves out in the, out in the world are instantly reduced back to the same three or four narr family narratives the minute we step foot back in the family estate. And I find this fascinating. There's no way to elude the straitjackets that we either readily acquire as family members or that we, you know, sorry, there's a tractor passing. <laughs> it's not loud on our end. We can't, it's not, we can't okay. really hear It's really loud here. <laughs> it's my neighbor, Peter. Peter's 90 and he comes home every weekend from Lake Placid to mow his lawn. <laughs> Um, all right, I think we can continue. In any event, um, you know, you, you walk back into the family estate and there you are, the, you know. The eight-year-old that you were once, you know. Yeah, you're playing under, and that's what's funny about families. You're, the, everybody is all the underdog. Even the patriarch is the underdog. Um, you know, everybody has these stories they tell one another and they very infrequently line up and they frequently agree, infrequently agree. So. I, I'm fascinated by the fact that that's where so much of our early, you know, early selves come from, but also the fertile nature of the family to create these stories and these stories that rarely, you know, right, can be reconciled one from the other teller. So I think that's a perfect place for or the perfect thing for the novel to focus on um, because of these conflicting, these conflicting storylines. Another book that I thought of when you were reading that passage and when I was reading the book generally is Jeffrey Wolf's memoir, The Duke of Deception. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but a really sure. favorite book of mine that I'm teaching this semester. And 
There's a lot of deception in the novel. You know, Charlie is diagnosed with pancreatic cancer earlier in the book, but he's deceptive about his diagnosis. Jake, who's telling the story, is deceptive about what happens to his dad in different ways. Um, but in that passage that you just read, Jake says, progress is a myth I don't know how to live without. That's deception too, the idea of progress, as he says in that passage. But it seems in, Jake, in Jake's mind to be a positive kind of deception. Can deception be positive? Well, here's how it, the, the distinction that I would make is this between illusion and delusion. And I would mm -hmm. say that an illusion is a healthy thing and a necessary thing. And this kind of goes back to, to some extent, it goes, goes much further back, but certainly in the 19th and 20th century, these were powerful forces in the philosophical world, the, psycho the, the world of psychology, Freud, Nietzsche. But these, th this is the distinction I would make. Uh, and the illusion, I might have the illusion that I'm going to be elected the president of the United States one day. And it's probably not going to happen, but, you know, I'm of age and I was <laughs> born here and maybe so, you know. Um, but I might also believe that I will be elected the first president of the United States. And that can, that can only be George Washington. And so I would be deluded. And I think that it's very healthy to have the former and very unhealthy to have the latter. But I think it's a distinction that, you know, really makes a difference because the, the illusion that God exists might be a very powerful one in, in somebody's life, determining a certain moral script and the arc of one's life. It may not pan out. You may die and that's it. <laughs> But it's mighty powerful and maybe even necessary to that individual. I, I think that progress for a long time was a myth that I was under in the same kind of pervasive way. It seemed to color the world. It seemed to determine where we were when I was born versus where my father was when he was born. I can now see it in my son who's 12 and can't imagine the world without the iPhone or the personal computer in a way that I have direct access to. And so he sees that generational divide not merely as, um, you know, one of technological advantage or disadvantage, but of a massive break in terms of where we were and where we're going. So progress is very much alive for him, the sense of progress and the sense of like living in an enlightened age. And I think that I did that. I did that in the same way that he's doing it. And it was only really with the death of my father that I understood a number of the powerful illusions that I was under that kept me going. And it was only after I stopped grieving for him that I reacquired them and was able to go on. So I think, you know, I think of illusion as a necessary and not, not very, I would say very frequently, a very healthy thing to have. Um, and, you know, they blend in to some extent. They might be called white lies, white lies to the self. They might be called, um, and they might even be called, you know, harder things. They might be called lies, but um, there is a distinction certainly between the kind of mendacity that we've seen on the national level over the past four or five years and the things that I'm talking about. Well, the idea of, of you know, I think the idea of living a life where you're only truthful is an impossible thing, right? And also, plus, besides the business that we're all in is about lying. And there's something important about fiction, obviously, and the telling of fiction. Um, Sugi, I want to just editorially, like, I have a question next that I think we already answered. So I, can you go on? Do you want to go on to the next one that you have? Sure. So I am really excited to talk to you about humor. And of course, we're in I don't know, kind of unfunny times at the moment. Um, every night, I wonder what Joe Manchin's going to do and whether that, whether, that's, you know, what's going really on. Um, 
You're speaking I, of guys with some illusions. <laughs> <laughs> um, and in the past, you've spoken about people responding to humor as though comedy can't also be literature, as though it doesn't also require craft, when of course it does. And I wondered if in, in sort of current times, if you think this is changing at all, that serious literary readers and critics are gaining a greater appreciation for writing that, um, as you, you told the Paris Review, I'm quoting here, mitigate some of the shit and misery that goes on because there is definitely more shit and misery going on. And I'm wondering if people are, are starting to appreciate the funny a little bit more. I don't know. I mean, I have no idea. I don't, I, I don't know why people have any resistance at all to funny things. It, 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 it doesn't comport with my reading. I mean, I, I think that when you can blend them together in a way that's both, you know, funny and moving or, funny and trenchant or whatever the case may be, it just elevates our literature. But there is a, a strain, a kind of um, orthodoxy among certain readers that says, if it's funny, it's not serious. If it's funny, it's not serious literature. And the, the distinction it holds you know, absolute sway with them. I've never understood it. Is it actually making a kind, is it a heyday for humor? I don't know. It certainly should be because the absurdities that we're confronted with in everyday life only demand that we up our game because we can't keep up with them. Maybe, maybe in fact, the absurdities of everyday life persuade us against it because they are so outrageous um, that maybe we should just get sort of all sober up so that we can approach the enemy, you know, with, with better wiles and, and, and um, force. I don't know. I, I do know that for me personally, there's an enormous amount of solace to the humorous and that I go there not just to laugh, but also to, you know, to cover over some of the things that I want to cry about. So I, I used to teach a class called Grief Memoirs and Humorous Reminiscence. And in reading your book, I was thinking about a lot of the books that I had taught in that class. And, and as you were talking about, you know, things that are extremely funny are often, of course, also extremely sad or extremely serious. And, and that incongruity is some of what the humor is coming from. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about how you see the connections between grief and humor evolving. I mean, obviously in, in this book, it's particularly um, a particularly powerful theme, but over the course of your work, how that has changed for you and, and how um, your sense of humor has changed over time. Well, I'll give you an example from real life. And that is to say that my father was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer early. He got test results back from his mother, from his doctor, and he sent it to his wife, who's, who is an oncologist, and they, they were the raw numbers. And she said, this is bad. You have to go see a, 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 an expert and get, find out the things that you have to do now today. And he was very distraught by this news. And then on M Monday came around, he went to that expert. But in the meantime, those raw numbers came uh, in the mail, as is a pro forma thing, I guess. And when she came home, his wife came home, she read them and she said, Chuck, you gave, you gave, you gave the wrong numbers to me. These, you're fine. And he said, oh, I don't have pancreatic cancer. How terrific. And then, well, sure enough, the results from the specialist came in and he had pancreatic cancer. So it was this wild topsy-turvy back and forth um, change that in time, because he actually did get an early diagnosis. This is my father we're talking about. And he had the Whipple procedure and he lived for seven additional years. In time, that came to seem about that terrible day, really funny, you know, the funny thing to take away from that moment. And that's how I just generally see, I suppose, the way I see the world. There's almost nothing that is bad that 
isn't tinged somehow, or if there is some extraneous thing out there that indicates some, even if it's terribly blackly funny, some funny thing. And that's how comedy works, but it's also, I think, how life works and why comedy is a necessary component of literature if we're going to actually capture the experience of life. I would say for me, in terms of like the way that it's progressed in my career is I, I, I've tried not to go there first thing, whereas I think before, as, an, as a younger writer, I would rely on it a little bit too much or I would go there first thing when I was sitting down and try to find out what was funny. I think maybe out of a certain a sense of insecurity, if I can make you laugh, I can make you keep reading. And now I'm a little less concerned about that. I mean, I have, say, I have things to say that are certainly as important, if not more than the humor. And so I, I can reserve it or treat it differently. I can, just, I can just deploy it in a different manner, in a less perhaps um, you know, anxious manner. Well, Josh, thanks for joining us today and talking about the book. Uh, we're going to remind our listeners to pick up uh, A Calling for Charlie Barnes, which we both really enjoyed reading. It's out now. And don't forget, you can listen to this discussion as a fiction, nonfiction episode uh, by subscribing to our show. Thanks so much for this conversation, Josh. Whitney and Sugi, thank you so much. Thank you to the uh, Miami Book Fair as well. That's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. This podcast is produced by Ann Knigendorf. Our music is composed by Travis Workman. Our University of Missouri Kansas City intern this semester is Hayden Baker. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. And please go give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com where the Fiction Nonfiction podcast page is listed under the LitHub Radio tab. We'll post a link to the books we referenced this week on Facebook at FNF Pod, on Twitter at FNF Talk, and on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. You can also find video of this interview at our own Fiction Nonfiction podcast YouTube channel and IGTV channel, and on our website at fnfpodcast.net where if you're an educator and want to use our podcast in the classroom or you're just a cool person, our back episodes are grouped by topic areas. You can also find this video on, it's already been shown as part of the Miami Book Fair. We'll provide links to all the stuff in the show notes and we'll be tweeting about and posting about it during the week. Happy reading. Thank you to the Miami Book Fair for working with us on this episode. The Miami Book Fair is a fantastic cultural experience. And I know because I've been there. And if you've never been, you should go.